Well, welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. This is Michael Delaware. I am your host. And today I'm going to explore the story of the very first framed hotel in the town of Battle Creek. And it was known as the Battle Creek House. And it was one of fascinating historical gatherings and the primary social venue of the pioneer period in the village of Battle Creek. But it was also overshadowed by a very dark tragedy. So we're gonna go into that story today. So stick around. So Leonard Starkweather Sr. was an early and prominent settler in Battle Creek. In 1836, he built the first framed hotel in the town, which became long known as the Battle Creek House, which opened in November of that year. It was located on what is known today as the corner of Capitol Avenue and Michigan Avenue in downtown Battle Creek. There is actually a historic marker at uh, 2 West Michigan Avenue, I believe is the name of the building. And it used to be there. Now, I was told recently that someone took the marker down when they were doing some remodeling, but it was right there near the entrance to that uh, 2 West Michigan. And uh, it tells the story of the Battle Creek House, and that was where it was located. It also served as a stagecoach line for much of the early history pre-Civil War in Battle Creek. So people would come on the stagecoach and stop off at the Battle Creek house. They'd have lunch or have a meal or they'd rent a room and stay overnight. And uh, so I'm going to go into a little bit more of that here a little bit later on. But Leonard Starkweather, he was born in Preston, New London County, Connecticut in 1782. And over the years, he was married twice. The first was to Esther Brewster, who would die shortly after the Battle Creek House was built. She died in 1838. Uh, The Battle Creek House was built in 1836. He would remarry a few years later to Sarah Sally Stewart. And during his time here in Battle Creek as the owner of the Battle Creek House... Leonard Starkweather became known as Old Stark, and he was also known as Uncle Stark. And he's referred to that by ADP Van Buren, who was one of the early pioneer historians from the period. I've actually done another uh, podcast episode on ADP Van Buren, and he had a lot to say about some of the early gatherings at the Battle Creek House, and they occasionally he would reference Old Stark or Uncle Stark in telling some of those stories. So over the decades that followed, the Battle Creek House held a prominent fixture as the center of social activities in the community. After the election of 1850, a bonfire was held on the crossroads outside of the intersection out in front of the uh, Battle Creek House, and candidates sometimes would stand on the balcony of the Battle Creek House and deliver speeches. Horace Greeley, in 1854, one year after the Michigan Anti-Slavery Society was formed, lectured in Battle Creek at the Methodist Church. Now, he stayed at the Battle Creek House while he was in town, and his room was thronged with visitors from the local citizenry, anxious to pay their respects to the man whose principle they favored. He was a very anti-slavery advocate. And so over the years, there were many landlords at the Battle Creek House. 
I counted roughly seven or eight different men that held that position. But Mr. Starkweather remained the property owner. So the Battle Creek House was the primary location where the townsmen congregated to talk about the weather, crops, and in later years, the progress of the Civil War or the Great Insurrection. The young men gathered on the front veranda in armchairs on summer evenings to gossip. In the winter evenings, those were given over to dances, oyster suppers, magic lantern shows, and other entertainments. All shows were followed by a dance. On Sunday evening, June 6, 1861, the hotel was badly damaged by fire, but repairs were made and it essentially recovered and was restored and continued use for a few more years. In later years, in 1865, there was a story about an event that happened following the surrender of Appomattox in the Civil War, of the surrender of Lee at Appomattox Courthouse. Uh, two rebel soldiers, Elihu Warner and Lucius Sweet, were made to swear allegiance and kiss the American flag on the balcony of the Battle Creek House. Such was the center of the community the Battle Creek House remained for so many years in the town. Eventually, the Battle Creek House would be totally destroyed by a fire on Saturday night, May 5th, 1866. This was a year following the completion of the Civil War. The Battle Creek House had been the main station for the stagecoach in town, where both the Teamster and the Traveler resorted. The location of the Battle Creek House was nearly midway between Detroit and Chicago, and it was on the old territorial road, and from it, lines of stagecoaches went north to Grand Rapids. And as I mentioned before, historian ADP Van Buren described the Battle Creek House as a place where many political meetings were held, where many battles between Democrats and Whigs were decided. In its 30 years of existence, the Battle Creek House was the center of social activity in the community, and it held its place of prominence in the community from the early days of the village to the end of the Civil War. So imagine the dark shadow that overcame the Battle Creek House in December of 1857. What happened then? Well, on December 11th, 1857, Leonard Starkweather murdered his wife, Sally Starkweather. And upon that event, a dark shadow fell across the Battle Creek House. Even though the crime had occurred elsewhere in town and nowhere near the location of the Battle Creek House, it was owned by the man who committed this heinous crime. And so it was tied in with Leonard Starkweather. And his crime so shocked the community that the trial that was held the following March was one filled with controversy. And it held a great deal of conflicting testimony. And, and it was a trial transcript that I found challenging to read on many levels, partially because the newspaper that carried the story was partially blacked out. So I could only get fragments of some key sections of the trial because the original scan of this newspaper was no longer there. So it was a, a difficult story to piece together, but nonetheless, I did persevere, and I've got somewhat of a timeline of what happened. And like I said, there was a great deal of conflicting testimony. Some were blaming Starkweather, as could be expected, because obviously he killed his wife. And the other 
part of the testimony was blaming the wife for the incident, as strange as that may be to contemplate. So I'm going to try to unpack some of this story here. So this following story was pieced together from testimony from the trial. And the jurors for this trial were selected from other parts of the county to hear the case. They didn't choose any juror from Battle Creek. Four men were chosen from Albion, four from Sheridan Township, three from Eckford, and one from Marengo Township formed the 12-man jury. In those days, women did not serve on the jury. This was 1857. The jury would have been in 1858 in March. So the story is taken mostly from the Battle Creek Journal, which was published during the time of the trial in 1858. Much of the original article, as I mentioned, was unreadable to, due to a poor scan of the original newspaper and a poor printing run of that paper that was saved and stored for scanning. So it's partially blacked out. And probably with some color correction on the images, I might be able to, at a future date, get into more details. But essentially, I was able to follow the story timeline from the testimony. And here's what essentially came out of it. As can be expected, Leonard and Sally had a quarrelsome relationship. And the incident took place in their home, which was located at the corner of South Division Street and Lydia Street. Now, Lydia Street no longer exists today, and that portion of South Division Street is now part of I-94 or 194, and it was absorbed into the creation of 194, otherwise known as the Penetrator. So, And the Penetrator essentially wiped out Lydia Street as well as a few other smaller streets that were down in that portion of town when it was all built. So this area of town no longer exists, but that's kind of roughly where it was. It was probably right near the Dickman exit of uh, 194 as you come into downtown Paddle Creek, if you can picture that. So they had a young son, and his name was John. And from what I was able to determine, John was roughly around eight or nine years old. Sally had an older daughter by the name of Eliza from a previous marriage. And the Starkweathers had guests that stayed in their home. Um, some were renting rooms. However, it was on a much smaller scale than the Battle Creek House downtown. And so the guests would be ones that would rent a room for several years. It wasn't something like an overnight rental. And there was a woman by the name of Lorinda Laughhead who had been at the Starkweather residence that day. And she had known Leonard Starkweather for about 20 years, and she also knew Sally for quite some time. She had stayed in the Starkweather home for three years, living with her mother, renting a room there. And so she was pretty intimate with the family. And even though she no longer lived there at the time of the incident, she often took tea there in the afternoon with Sally. And that had been the case the day of the murder. And she had been there just about 5 p.m. And in that tea, Mrs. Starkweather had complained of not feeling well. But she didn't send for a physician. Um, she did her own work at home, tending to the guests and the rooms and the housekeeping. And previously to her knowledge, this being Mrs. Laughhead's knowledge, Mrs. Starkweather had always been in good health. And Eliza, the daughter, was there as well and appeared to have been at the same tea 
And when they were done having their tea, she went to visit another woman that lived across the street around 6 p.m. And that woman's name was Mrs. Snow. So Mrs. Snow lived across the street from the Starkweathers. And Eliza went across after evening tea and, and to go visit Mrs. Snow. And she ended up staying there until about 9 or 10 p.m. that evening. And when she left, Leonard Starkweather was at home and he was apparently doing nothing uh, except hanging around. And so Eliza remained at Mrs. Snow's till about 9 to 10 p.m. And then she was called home by a young lady who said that she'd heard noises from her house. So Eliza went directly home and went through the front door. The little boy, John, was sitting at the dining room table. And then she saw Mr. Starkweather coming out of his bedroom. And beyond him, through the doorway, she could see her mother lying on the floor. And apparently, this is where it got a little bit strange in the testimony that she ran outside the door at that point and yelled murder. So apparently she saw her mother lying there in some blood. And then she went back inside and observed that her mother was lying on the floor with her feet under the stove in the bedroom. And initially, she didn't see any club. This would come into play later. And she was found to be lying on the floor, and her feet were under the stove. So I guess she had fallen down in the attack or the incident, and her feet had slid under a stove. The club, in later reports, which came out, was described in one article as a baseball bat, and another it was described as a simple broom handle. And the broom handle seemed to be the description they used during the trial. So anyway, so she turned to leave and Mr. Starkweather said to her, Eliza, I have killed your mother. So he basically confessed to Eliza right there. Eliza went out to the street and went back over to Mrs. Snow's and sent word for help. And then she returned with Mr. Snow and she met Starkweather at the gate at that time coming back into the house. And this time he looked at her again. He said, I'm afraid I've killed your mother. And so she returned back inside. And this time she found John standing over her mother. And it was discovered that Sally was still alive. She had been moving a little bit. And John was saying to her mother, mother, can't you speak to me? And she was lying in a pool of blood. And Sally raised herself on her elbows to try to speak with her son, John, and then fell back down. And she would pass away about 20 minutes later. And this was when Eliza in the trial described that she saw the club for the first time and that John had picked it up and showed it to her and told her that it was the club their mother had been killed with. And there was blood all over the club and there was also blood all over the head and shoulders of Mrs. Starkweather. And there was a pail of water in a basin in the middle of the floor with no water in it. And that was kind of described later, and I'll get into that detail. So meanwhile, while all this is going on, Mr. Starkweather had gone into another room and changed his clothes. So he'd been, he wandered outside, said those few things to Eliza, wandered back in, went into another room and changed his clothes. And testimony from Eliza at the trial indicated that Mr. and Mrs. Starkweather had been living apart for three years in the same house. And that the little boy, John would stay in the same room as Sally. And Mr. Starkweather had been known to make threats to Sally, but to everyone's knowledge, he had never physically harmed her. However, there was also some testimony from people that said that Sally had reported bruises on her arms 
in the months prior. So there was a bit of conflicting testimony in this whole thing. And once again, trying to read the article and piece it together when some sentences were blacked out by ink was really a challenge. But their young son, John, apparently witnessed the attack. And he testified at the trial. And he testified that he heard Mrs. Starkweather hallow out the word murder when Mr. Starkweather had attacked her. And Mr. Starkweather apparently had walked into the room and where Mrs. Starkweather was and began to undress and then handed her his clothes. And then she picked him up and placed him in the parlor. And then he lay down on the bed and she took the pillows off the bed and placed them in the hallway. So there was this little subtle thing going on between the two of them. And then she returned into the room and that's when he struck her with the club. He then threw the club on the floor with a loud crash. And then he went over and picked it up again and struck her four more times. So John apparently observed these events through the doorway of his own room or an adjoining room. Maybe he was sitting at the dining room table when he saw this. And the door was open and he heard the attack and Mrs. Starkweather was crying out. And he also witnessed the blows and saw Mr. Starkweather exit the room and Sally lying on the floor. And at that point, she was groaning. And then he ran and grabbed a pail of water out of the kitchen and then poured it over his mother. And he was found to be standing there when Eliza came in. So that's how the pail of water got there. And I think he also carried a basin of water from the kitchen and did the same thing. I guess he was thinking like a little boy trying to wake his mother up. So that was kind of the incident of the whole evening, and it was pretty traumatic, and certainly for the young boy and Eliza and everybody involved. And the constable apparently was brought in, and Mr. Starkweather was taken away into custody. John Van Armen, a well-known attorney from that time period, assisted by Leonidas Dibble, they served as the defense attorneys for Leonard Starkweather in his trial. And instead of being convicted of murder, they managed to get him as conviction to overturn to manslaughter. So that was kind of strange, but that's evidently how the justice system worked in that time period. So what really provoked Leonard Starkweather to kill his wife? Um, all accounts, even in later years, described it as a fit of rage. Now, reports from the trial transcripts from one neighbor testified that Mrs. Starkweather treated him poorly calling him names, and sometimes referring to him as the devil. Now, you got to remember that this that was a pretty big insult during that period of time in history. We're talking about pre-Civil War period, very religious people at that time, and it was kind of like the Victorian era before the Civil War. So to call somebody that was a pretty huge insult. So that was what they claimed she had referred to him as on more than one occasion. And one witness claimed that she threatened to cut him at times, and other witnesses refuted these accusations. Others claimed that it was Mr. Starkweather who used the insulting language towards his wife. And at the trial, Starkweather claimed he'd been drunk and that he drank at least three different times that day and was blaming his actions on alcohol um, or at least he appeared to blame the rage on alcohol now there was other testimony that said they had been around him that day and he didn't appear drunk and that he hadn't drank as much as he said he had 
Um, he also apparently displayed a great display of grief while on the stand during his testimony, which was likely used by the defense team to persuade the jury to lessen it to the charge of manslaughter. So I guess the prominent figure of a Battle Creek hotel owner or a well-known Battle Creek figure, even though they may not have known him because they came from a different part of the county, but the man grieving on the witness stand about how sorry he was evidently swayed them to lower it from a charge of first-degree murder to manslaughter. Now, I'm only speculating here. That wasn't really clearly defined in the trial transcripts and the outcome. I just know from my research into the story of Leonidas Dibble that the results of that trial was that he had managed to, along with Van Armen, uh, get him a verdict of manslaughter as opposed to murder. So it was reported that he was sent to Jackson Prison, but his time there was short-lived. And the last known record that I was able to find on Starkweather was that he was living in Monroe, Jasper County, Iowa, at the time of his death at the age of 83 in February of 1866. And this was less than nine years after killing Sally. So how much time he actually spent in prison is unknown. I don't know that because there really wasn't any record that I could find in the old newspapers that talked about his release. But there was one article that said he was his time there was short-lived. One can assume that it was somewhere less than nine years, perhaps even only a few years. So interestingly enough, a few months after his death was the time that the Battle Creek House would burn to the ground for the final time in early 1866. And it would fade away into the memory of the city. So that's kind of the story of Leonard Starkweather, who was one of the early pioneer settlers who built the first framed hotel in Battle Creek. And it became a central gathering spot for the city and the early pioneer village. And it was likely a big recruiting place for soldiers going off to the Civil War. In fact, some of the Civil War stories, one could speculate, some of the ones that I've covered on my podcast, like the story of Cornelius Byington and the first 90 or so recruits that came from Battle Creek just a week to 18 days after the war started. A lot of those recruiting actions probably occurred right at the Battle Creek house. And it's uh, because it was the community gathering spot. And that was where the men gathered in town. And that was where the young men gathered too. So if you're going to get recruits, that would be logical. That would be the place that you would uh, seek the young people that you wanted to go off and serve in the war, as well as the old men that wanted to go and fight. You know, So it was kind of a central gathering spot. It had a prominent place in the community. But of course, 1857 was several years before the Civil War broke out. I mean, that was 1861 that the Civil War erupted. So you have this thing that happened where the owner of the Battle Creek House murders his wife from all appearances in total cold blood. And maybe he was enraged from the way she was treating him or saying things to him. Maybe he was drunk. Maybe he was jealous of her. Maybe he was resentful because they weren't intimate anymore. And there could have been a lot of things going on in that dynamic. And we, of course, could probably compare it to a lot of incidents that we we know in present time when it comes to the dynamic relationships between men and women. 
And so it's not something that was entirely unusual for something like that to happen. It was just a lot more unusual back at that time period. Uh, apparently, those sorts of things didn't just happen as we are so commonly see on the nightly news today. So it was uh, kind of a shock to the community when it went down. And of course, the trials were held fairly swiftly. I mean, this murder happened in December and they held a trial in March. So they did try to deliver justice quickly. And some of the other murder cases that I have covered on this channel, you'll see that the context of that is pretty consistent, especially during that time period, pre-Civil War, where they were trying to deliver justice within a few months of something like that happening. Um, so it was um, certainly a very sad event that happened, and it did overshadow the early history of the Battle Creek House up to that point. And it probably um, led to its neglect in a lot of ways, just from being the image of Leonard Starkweather, who was probably so well thought of up to that point in time. And it changed the, the dynamics of the whole town. And it's not surprising that it kind of fell into neglect and got burned down to the ground um, less than 10 years after this happened. So it's just a very interesting story, very interesting chapter of history. And the early part of the Battle Creek House, there's some great old photographs of it. Uh, that you can find at the Willard Library. And I'll try to put that as part of the image onto the description of this podcast episode so you can see a little bit of small image of that. But that's going to conclude today's journey through history and exploring some of the history of the Battle Creek House and its early days as a stagecoach stop and the gathering place in the community and the dark shadow of a terrible event that kind of took it off in a different direction in its latter years of its existence in the community. And the falling from fame or falling from favor of the man who built the place. And there's other stories about the Starkweather family. There was a Leonard Starkweather Jr. whom I've got a really interesting story to share that's actually a bear story. So I'll share that in a later episode when I do uh, more stories about bears in the community. I did one podcast episode on bear history and bear attacks and things around the state. And I've collected another story with Leonard Starkbeather Jr. that is actually somewhat funny about a bear that um, encounter on the Gograk Prairie. But that will be for another episode. So that's going to conclude today's journey through history. If you enjoyed Today's episode, be sure to share my podcast with others. And certainly, um, if you are on Apple iTunes listening to this, I believe on Apple iTunes, there is a way to write a review about podcasts that you like. And if you would leave a positive review on there, that would be great. If you'd like to reach out to me, you can reach me at michaeldelaware.com and send me a contact form on there. And I'm always happy to hear from people. And until next time, when we take another journey into yesterday and explore yet another fascinating tale from Southwest Michigan's past. Thanks for listening. <laughs>